Good evening, and welcome to the Fuel Bible Study of the Book of Romans. My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors at Rock Church in East Peoria. Let me just say I love studying God's Word with you. In my opinion, studying the Bible verse by verse is one of the most rewarding things a person can do. So thank you for taking the time to study with me. It's my prayer that these lessons will be helpful to you on this journey called life. Now tonight we're going through an extremely important, extremely powerful passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. And the main thought I want you to take away is this. You can't appreciate the good news until you understand the bad news. For example, you can't appreciate the good news of a parachute until you understand the bad news about your impending plane crash. You can't appreciate the good news concerning your surgery until you understand the bad news that your appendix has burst. And you can't appreciate the good news about the lifeboat until you understand the bad news that your boat is sinking. You get the idea. Recently, I saw a real-life example of this. My son did not appreciate the good news that I found a great mechanic to work on his truck. That is, until I told him the bad news that his transmission was shot. And just like these examples, we cannot really appreciate the good news concerning Jesus until we understand the bad news that we have no chance of being right with God without Jesus. And so this is the main takeaway from our study tonight. You can't appreciate the good news until you understand the bad news. Now, if you remember last time, we finished last time on a high and hopeful note. If you remember, we closed with Romans 1, 16 and 17. That's where Paul declared, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He is saying that there is good news for mankind. The gospel is available to all humanity, and it is the power of God for salvation. But Paul's declaration implies something that can be hard to swallow. And that something is this, the bad news that humanity is bad. Before we can appreciate the good news of the cross, we have to understand how lost we are without it. And that's something that many in our culture have trouble hearing. The, the opinion that is out there states that mankind is basically good. And with the right government and right programs, we can create our own heaven here on earth. Carrie Newhoff said, we live in an age of opinions that are strongly held and weakly formed. And this opinion that mankind is not lost is strongly held by many. But our news headlines contradict that. Let me share with you four news stories that have occurred just since our last session and just in America alone. Story number one, eight people killed in Atlanta area mass massage parlor shootings. Headline number two, rapper Little Nas X's Nike Satan shoes spark outrage. Yes, they contain one drop of human blood. Headline number three, Boulder shooting. Gunman kills 10, including police officer at King Soper's. Four, two teenagers kill an Uber Eats driver in D.C. 
That's just four headlines just in the last month. Does that sound like we're basically good and with just a few tweaks we'll achieve utopia? No, it doesn't. And so Paul is going to have to shoot straight with us concerning mankind's condition apart from God. Now remember, he's writing this letter to the church at Rome. One possible reason God had Paul write this letter to the church at Rome was because of its Gentile-Jewish mix. It had a very good mix of Gentiles and Jews. It actually had the perfect representation of humanity there. The Jewish population there represented God's special race of people, set apart by God, who had received the Old Testament. And the Gentiles, biblically speaking, include everyone else include all of mankind who are not Jews. Paul will now begin the process of explaining how all humanity has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. He will also explain that the wages of sin is death. And so he begins to make his case as a master prosecuting attorney. It has been said that Romans 1.18 is the door that leads us into God's courtroom. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Okay, that's just three verses, but jam-packed. So we're going to break this down by looking at the following three concepts. We can summarize these three verses with these three concepts, and then we'll connect them all together. Those three concepts are the wrath of God, the suppression of the truth, and intelligent design. And these are all connected. So let's do a summary real quick. We can summarize it like this. God's wrath, which is his fair and holy response to depraved sin, is being revealed. It's being revealed because although they knew God existed as evidenced by his creation, they suppressed this knowledge. And they suppressed this knowledge about God by purposely ignoring it so they could do the sinful things they wanted to. That's it in a nutshell. This process I just de described, this happened from the time of the Garden of Eden up until God's wrath was released during the flood. But mankind, unfortunately, learned nothing and did it all over again. From the day that Noah got off the boat until the time that Paul is writing to the Romans, the Gentiles had steadily and progressively suppressed the knowledge of God. So let's take a, a look at each of these concepts individually. The wrath of God, the suppression of the truth, and intelligent design. Starting with the wrath of God. So remember, Paul is playing the role of prosecuting attorney right now. And we are in the courthouse. And so Paul opens up with his first indictment, which is against the Gentiles. He will be dealing with the Jewish race in chapter 2, but first up are the Gentiles. And Paul has to give them the bad news. The bad news is that they are under God's wrath. And we learn three things right away about the wrath of God. Number one, it is revealed from heaven. Number two, it is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness 
of mankind. And three, it is because mankind has been suppressing the truth about the true God. Now, as soon as we hear the phrase, wrath of God, alarm bells go off, right? For many people, it brings up negative feelings. We know God is a God of love. So wrath to our human ears sounds like a contradiction. But actually, we think that because there's a disconnect on our end. The problem is on our end because of our limited human understanding. Let me explain. It's because we confuse the wrath of God with the wrath of man. The Holman New Testament commentary says, Surely one of the most maligned of God's characteristics, his wrath, is not like the wrath of man. Humanly speaking, wrath calls to mind the severest form of anger, and anger produces images of those we know who demonstrate carnal, fleshly anger. Paraphrase, human wrath is nasty and is tainted by sin. Have you ever experienced human wrath from somebody? Have you ever experienced somebody who goes off on you in fits of anger and rage? Many times for no reason at all. If you've experienced this, then you know all too well that human wrath is one of the ugliest things you can experience. Unfortunately, when we read about God's wrath, we naturally project what we understand about human wrath onto him. Thinking God's wrath is like human wrath directly contradicts what we know about the love of God. So this understanding of God's wrath confuses us. It leads to confusion. Is he a God of love or is he a God of wrath? And then it makes us insecure regarding our relationship with him. I mean, even if we are in Christ, how can we trust a God who will just go off? How can we trust an unstable God? A God who will just go off on us like those we have known in the past. However, this view of God is entirely false. And that's the key point. God's wrath is 100% different than the wrath of man. James 1.20 states, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, which means that man's wrath is in contrast to God's character. Why? Because man's wrath is tainted by sin. God's wrath is not in contrast with his character because it is not tainted by sin. You see, we only have a context of sinful wrath. So as we continue to talk about this, let's start off with an easy-to-remember definition of God's wrath. God's wrath is his fair and holy response to depraved sin. The Greek word for wrath is orge. It's used in various places in the New Testament. But I want to call your attention to one verse in particular. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Because I think this gives us a little bit of a different perspective when we see it manifested in Jesus. In, in this verse, the way orge is used will help us understand God's wrath a little better. So give you the backdrop. Jesus has just entered into a Jewish meeting place, a synagogue, on the Sabbath day. And Mark tells us 
a man was there whose hand was withered. And the religious leaders were watching him to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. That's a big no-no in their book. So there's a man there with a deformed hand, but they are without compassion. They don't care about this man. They had a twisted understanding of God, and they decided he cared more about rules than people. And so they cared more about rules than people. This caused them to be vehemently opposed to this man receiving a miracle from God. Can you imagine? Jesus tells the man to come forward because he knows he's going to heal him, right? But before he does, he asks the religious leaders a question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath or save a life or to kill? The fact that they refuse to respond is very telling. The word says, but they kept silent. Now let's see Jesus's response in verse five. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Didn't matter that they were opposed. This man still received his miracle. Amen. Aren't you glad that your blessing isn't dependent on somebody else's opinion? God's miracles in your life cannot be thwarted by people who don't think you deserve them. Amen. But that's another message. <laughs> but let's zone in now on that word anger. That is the same word we just saw in Romans 1.18 that's translated as wrath. And what we are seeing is Jesus's wrath being displayed, his fair and holy response to the depraved sin of the lovelessness and legalism of the Pharisees. Their hearts were so hard that they opposed the great thing God wanted to do in that man's life. And Jesus was angry about it. So you see, God's wrath is in total alignment with his character. Some think it's in contradiction with his love. But look again at Jesus' wrath. His love caused him to want to heal that man. But his wrath was towards those who wanted to suppress this expression of his love. Now we have that as a context. Let's bring this back to Romans 1.18. The sin of the Pharisees we just looked at can be characterized as hardness of heart. This is just one of mankind's sin, just one of them that warrants God's fair and holy response against it. God is holy and is the absolute standard of right and wrong in the universe he created. And so because of that, his wrath his fair and holy response to depraved sin, watch this now, must occur against all sin. Let's say it another way. Because God is morally perfect, as well as all-powerful, the king of the universe, he is directly responsible for divine order in his creation. And this divine order must be in alignment with his morally perfect nature. So, he could not ignore or condone sin any more than a righteous judge could ignore or condone cold-blooded murder. Are you following this, right? This is God's fair and holy response. 
If he would do anything less, it would be wrong. But he's never capricious. It's never hateful. And it's never tainted with sin. It's always accorded with truth. Now, that's some heavy stuff. At this point, let me just say something. Paul is painting the backdrop for us jet black. He's giving us the honest truth. And he's doing that to reveal the gem of the gospel in all its beauty and splendor. You can't appreciate the good news until you understand the bad news. And this is some bad news for us. Bad news, but news that's essential that we understand. The Holman New Testament commentary tells us this. Without the preaching and teaching of the doctrine of wrath, it's impossible to see the fullness of God's righteousness. Timothy Keller explains, if you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, the gospel will not thrill, empower, or move you. It's important for us to realize that every sin we commit merits the wrath of God. That indeed is dark. It is indeed the worst news ever. But as we come to grips with our own darkness, we are then in position. Everybody say position. We are then in position to appreciate the cross. We begin to see that this is what makes the cross so wonderful. Jesus took my earned and well-deserved punishment. Jesus absorbed God's wrath on my behalf and on behalf of all humanity. And now God is calling out to all mankind. And he's saying to you and me and to whosoever will hear, Jesus paid it all. Your sin has been taken care of. Because of what Jesus did for you, you need never to experience judgment. All has been taken care of. So come on home. The Father waits for you with open arms. That is the good news we have to share with the world. And that's the good news that we can appreciate once we understand the bad news. So that is the wrath of God. There's a lot more we could say about that, but that gives us the overall big picture. Now, Paul is going to give us the exact steps mankind took that got them into the mess they were in. And it's this, it's because mankind suppressed the truth about God that was evident in creation. So let me give you an illustration of what this word, and in Greek it's kateko, means. A helmsman is the person responsible for steering a ship. And that's where we're going to get our illustration from. Whenever a helmsman steers a boat against a current, he is enacting this word, suppression. He is suppressing the will of the current by going his own way. John Corson explains it like this. He says, in other words, the current wants to take the boat a certain way, but determined to go the opposite way, the helmsman holds the rudder in such a way that he might go his way instead of the way of the current. That is a great picture of what Paul is trying to explain here about mankind. The current is God's 
way. But mankind is determined to go his own way. So man stubbornly goes against the current of God's way by ignoring the truth he knows about God. He then establishes his own quote-unquote truth. Why? So he can justify doing his own thing. That is the essence of the suppression of the truth. And we all are or have been guilty of this. I will confess right now, I have been guilty of this. I remember when I was a teenager, I did this. My mom was Catholic. My dad was Greek Orthodox. And so I was raised with a firm belief in God. Even though I wasn't born again until I was in my 20s, I believed in God all throughout my childhood. But when I was 14, like a lot of kids, I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And I began to do so more and more. One morning while lying in my bed, my conscience began to speak to me about what I was doing. That ever happened to you? In my heart, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I was strongly convicted about it. I knew God didn't like it and that I should stop. But here's the thing. I did not want to stop. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the alcohol, the drugs, the partying, and I enjoyed them too much to give them up. So, without me even being really conscious of what I was doing, I made a decision right there. A thought came to me, and the thought was this. Don't worry about quitting. Why? There is no God. That's the thought that came in my head. When you die, you're worm food. That's the end right there. And so I made the decision at that moment to agree with that thought because it was a way out. So I agreed with the thought that there is no God. And so with God now out of the way in my conscience, I was able to continue living the way I wanted to. I was no longer burdened by worries about sinning against God. What did I do right there? I suppressed the knowledge of God so I could go my own way. That's what Paul is talking about here. One of my favorite stories of all time is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And my favorite movie version, hands down, is the one with George C. Scott, the one that aired in 1984 on CBS. And in this clip that I'm about to show you, we'll get our last illustration regarding the suppression of truth. In this scene, Scrooge is being forced to face a hard truth. The truth that his decisions have made him an object of pity rather than an admired man of business. That's how he thought the world should view him anyway. Rather than accepting and taking action based on this truth, he instead suppresses it. In so doing, he gives us a great picture of what humanity does with its knowledge of God. So watch this. I saw an old friend of yours in the city this afternoon. Who was it? Guess. I can't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge it was. I passed his office window and it was not shuttered. 
he had a single candle lit upon his desk. His partner, Jacob Marley, lies on the point of death, I hear. And there he sat, Ebenezer Scrooge, alone. Quite alone in the world, I do believe. Poor Ebenezer. Poor wretched man. Spare me your pity. I have no need of it. They can't hear you. And as for you, I've had enough of your pictures from the past. Leave me! Haunt me no longer! Truth lives. Regardless of how much we might want to deny it so we don't have to face it, truth is still truth. So what truth did mankind suppress? Evidence of the creator as found in his creation. What we call intelligent design. If there is a building, there's a builder. If there's a painting, there's a painter. If there's a design, there's a designer. And if there's a creation, there's a creator. Man was designed with the internal ability to instinctively know about God just by looking at his creation. The creation is packed with creator evidence, but the Gentiles have chosen to suppress that knowledge. Now, this is such an important topic, and I I struggled, to be honest with you, because there's a lot of material to cover with this topic. I don't want to cut my teaching on it short. So I decided in order to make sure we give it the treatment it deserves, I will be releasing a supplemental teaching to this lesson titled Intelligent Design, Evidence of the Creator. That's going to be released next Monday, which is April 12th at 6.30 p.m. That's going to be one you don't want to miss. Now, before we move on, let's once again summarize these important three verses. God's wrath, his fair and holy response to depraved sin, is being revealed. It's being revealed because although they knew God, they knew God existed as evidenced by his creation, they suppressed this knowledge. And they suppressed this knowledge about God by purposely ignoring it so they could do the sinful things they wanted. Now, moving on to verses 21 through 23. We all have been taught evolution in school, but these next verses declare something quite to the contrary. Spiritually speaking, mankind did not evolve, but instead devolved. He started off with a blazing revelation regarding the knowledge of God. However, once that knowledge was rejected and suppressed, he began his tragic descent into darkness. Let's read about it in verses 21 through 23. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What we see here 
is a scathing indictment against the Gentiles. Listen to this quote from Timothy Keller. We must worship something. We were created to worship the creator. So if we reject him, we will worship something else. That is the truth. Whether you consider yourself religious or not, everyone worships. And these verses tell us humanity in general has traded the worship of God for the worship of idols. Why do they do this? They do this because the true God is holy. By worshiping gods other than the true God, they were able to fulfill their deep innate need to worship something. But they could do so without holding themselves accountable to the high moral standards of the true God. In other words, by worshiping these false idols, the Gentiles gave themselves a license to sin. As we will see, this leads to all kinds of immorality and debauchery. With God now out of the way and no standard to stop them, mankind's foolish heart becomes darker and darker. They thought they were wise with their various philosophies. But in truth, they actually became fools. With no holy God to restrain them, their descent continued, as we see now in verses 24 and 25. It reads, Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What's happening here is Paul is allowing us to witness the natural progression of rebellion against God. First rejection and suppression, then substitution of idols for God. Then they hit rock bottom with unchecked immorality. We as a country would do well to study this passage of scripture. But unfortunately, these verses they're really offensive to a portion of our society. There are many who now consider any check on sexuality to be one of the gravest sins possible. But society does not set the standard for God's law. Amen? And what that means for you and me is that we need to be praying for our country. We may be tempted to give up on America, saying she's fallen too far. There's actually a well-known preacher who has recently said this very thing. But I think as long as we are the church of Jesus Christ, and as long as we have breath in our lungs to pray, there is still a chance. You're saying there's a chance. Yes, there is still hope. Amen? As long as we're here, we're his body. I'm still praying for a great awakening in our country. He's done it before. And we can ask him to do it again. Now, Paul is giving us a play-by-play -play of mankind's tragic descent. And now he shares more insight with us. Verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
So what we just read here is consistent with what, with what we said earlier. When a people declare they are no longer under any obligation to adhere to God's moral standards, bad things happen. God gives them what they want. That's what it means when it says God gave them over. It's a slow fade because God is patient and does not want this for people. However, eventually, because of their rejection, he will give them what they want. He will give them over. He will no longer restrain. And when that happens, anything goes, as we're seeing in our society. It's a free-for-all, but this is not freedom. Talking about this phrase, God gave them over, the Holman New Testament commentary says this, it's best to conclude that God takes an active involvement in giving people over to the desires of their hearts. It goes on to say, as has been well stated, the punishment of sin is sin. Now, this particular passage is probably the clearest repudiation of homosexuality in the Bible. Those who say that the Bible does not speak against it have a really hard time with this passage. And that's because it's here in black and white, and it's indisputable. It's very clear in its denunciation of this practice. There's no doubt about it. I, we have to be clear about that. The scripture says what it says. But we also have to stay balanced. Amen? And I say that because some teach that this sin is worse than all others. But in just a moment, we're going to see Paul give us a rapid-fire list of many sins that mark a depraved society. And listen, you and I will see ourselves in at least a few of those traits that mark a depraved society, if we're honest. Okay. So what is my point? The Bible's message to those who struggle with same-sex attraction is the same message to all of us. The gospel offers forgiveness and freedom to you in the same way it does for all of us sinners, present company included. Forgiveness and freedom is available to all who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that some people have a natural tendency toward homosexuality. That should not surprise us. It's part of the process described here. It's part of what happens in the society over time once it rejects and suppresses the knowledge of God. But the bottom line is we all have a bend towards immorality. Each one of us may struggle in a different area. But there is no room for any feelings of superiority. Your sin may not look exactly like my sin, right? But we both struggle with it, right? So there's only room for humility. We are all sinners just with different weaknesses. This means we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Equally lost and equally redeemable. God is an equal opportunity savior. Amen. So the question is not, am I going to have a weakness towards sin even after I come to Christ? The truth is that until we receive our glorified bodies, we will still battle our weaknesses. 
The real question is, am I going to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, reject and resist behavior that contradicts God's word? When we answer yes to that question, the Holy Spirit takes us on a journey to freedom. It's a lifelong journey because there is always more freedom he wants to give us. Amen. One last thought on this. There are some who claim that the principles of freedom don't apply to those who battle same-sex attraction. They say that those folks are pretty much stuck. That they can't really be helped. That they are somehow less than. And if they choose Christ, they have to live a sub-Christian life. Less than what God desires for them. But I'm here to tell you the devil is a liar. A study of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 will put that thought to rest. This passage reveals that there were some Christians in Corinth whose struggle concerned homosexuality, but had made the decision to follow Christ and had turned from that lifestyle and had broken free. Doesn't say that they didn't struggle, but they were now living a life of freedom. And the takeaway is this, God is no respecter of persons. If he's willing to set one person free, he's willing to set us all free. Amen? Now, let's close out this chapter with what we'll call traits of a depraved civilization. Here Paul lists over 20 traits of depravity that strongly manifest in societies that reject God. Take a look at these sins and keep an eye on them. How many have you yourself engaged in? I know I've seen myself in this list. It's a very sobering list for me, but it leads me to love and appreciate God more. That's the end game from this. When we realize how far we are from God's standard and yet his love and patience toward us. Let's read verses 28 through 32. It says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Sounds like our culture. Amen. And this is sobering. It's sobering for me to know how many of these I've committed, both before Christ and even after. But the good news is that God is not interested in perfection. He's interested in direction. After we come to Christ, we still have a lot of baggage to deal with. Much of our life after we come to Christ will consist of him getting this stuff out of us. Amen. He does this by his Holy Spirit in the process known as sanctification. This is the process where we are conformed more and more into the character of Christ. That's why I said earlier that this is a lifelong journey. 
It's because we're being conformed into the character of Christ and we're never going to arrive. There's always going to be more growth. So don't be frustrated with yourself if you're not perfect. Focus on what God is doing in you now. Partner with him as he continually conforms you into his image. That's part of the process. But we won't enjoy it if we're constantly condemning ourselves. Amen. And if you blow it, like we always say, admit it, quit it, and forget it. Move on with God. Now, in conclusion, the more I studied this passage, the more precious it became to me. The more we study this passage, the more precious it should become to us. How can something so dark become precious? Because as we look at the traits of wickedness, and we don't look at it as just external, those people, but we realize our own wickedness and think about the ones that we have exhibited in our lives, both before and after we came to Christ. When we think about this, it causes us to be amazed at the love and patience of God towards us. Also, these verses leave no room for pride, but only for great humility and great gratitude. But for the grace of God, there go I. Do you ever wonder how far down you would have gone if he didn't intervene? I came to Christ when I was 25 is when I really gave my life to him. I, I was born again younger than that, but that's when he really got a hold of me. And I wonder how much further would I have gone? Because I was at rock bottom. So how could I ever think myself better than anyone else? I love this quote from author Scott Sauls. He says, if reading the Bible causes me to scrutinize others more than I scrutinize myself, then I am not reading the Bible correctly. The Bible should cause us to be inwardly introspective rather than externally judgmental. It also should lead us to more humility and love towards those who haven't responded to the good news yet. And yet sometimes we see Christians thinking that they're better than those who don't know Christ. My beloved brethren, these things should never be. Amen? Amen. So there we have it. Take a deep breath. That's a lot of stuff. We have now completed the first chapter of this mighty book. Now, next time we're going to look at chapter two. And to set the tone, think about this. The religious people who would have been reading this letter from Paul are probably feeling pretty good right about now. Maybe feeling a little morally superior. You can almost hear them saying, yeah, Paul, give it to those godless heathens. But you could almost also hear Paul's response. I believe he'd say something like this. You, my religious friends, haven't heard anything yet. You just hang on because my next indictment is against you. And that will be the subject of our message next time. This was God's indictment against the Gentiles and the immoral of the world. Chapter 2 is going to cover his indictment against those who considered themselves morally and religiously superior. And spoiler alert, it's not going to be pretty. 
And so we close on that note. And so thank you for being here. Until next time, my prayer is that God will continually bless you and yours.